Dissonance Media and the Other Stories presents Step into the abyss of After the Gloaming, a gothic fiction podcast that delves into the depths of human emotion, unyielding love, revenge, internal struggles, and restless souls await you in nine haunting episodes where dread, fear, and rare glimpses of eerie happiness linger. Dare to listen on your favourite podcatcher? After the gloaming beckons, search now, but beware, innocence will be left behind. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. These aren't the stories your mother told you. No, these are the other stories. <laughs> Hello, dear listeners. I will keep today's introduction short and sweet. Over the coming weeks, we're publishing free stories by Benjamin Percy. If you're an audio fiction fan, you might recognize his work from Wolverine, The Long Night, and The Lost Trail, along with Marvel's Wastelanders, Old Man Star-Lord. If you're a comic book fan, Ben has written an insane amount for Marvel and DC. My personal favorites are his ongoing runs on X-Force, Wolverine, and Ghost Rider, and I'm very excited about the upcoming Wolverine vs. Predator. If you're a book fan, books are kind of like podcasts, but the words are trapped, cooled, and pinned to the pages like Pretty Little Butterflies, you should know that the free stories we are running are from his collection, Suicide Woods. So if you enjoy any of the stories, I heartily recommend you pick up the full book. He's also working on the Comet cycle of novels, including The Sky Vault, which is just released. I'll put a link to that in the show notes, so be sure to go and pick it up. So, I don't know if you can tell, but I'm a big fan of this guy's work, and it's incredibly exciting to work on, on these stories. This, as they say, is a big get. The three stories we are featuring are The Cold Boy, Heart of a Bear, and The Balloon. I love these stories. They range from scary to strange, from delightfully sweet to bleaker than the inner lining of a black hole, which I think you'll agree is exactly what we like on the other stories. On narration duties, we have the consonant reader and vowel architect, Justin Fife, 
and that audio alchemist for these sessions is none other than Carl Hughes. With all that said, welcome to episode one of the Benjamin Percy trilogy, The Cold Boy, written by Benjamin Percy and narrated by Justin Fife. The forest is hardwood, and the branches of oaks and sycamores are bare except for the crows, hundreds of them, all huddled like little men in black jackets. Together they make strange music, muttering to one another in rusty voices as they click their beaks and rustle their feathers and claw at the bark. They can be heard a quarter mile away, across a snowy cornfield, where Ray stands in a frozen pond. The stubs of last year's cornstalks fang through the snow, and two sets of footprints lead like a rough blue stream from the house to the pond. Two sets of footprints, yet he is alone on the ice. The cold rises through the soles of his boots, creeping up his legs into his chest so that his heart feels frosted with tiny white crystals. The pond is big, close to two acres, with three holes melted into its ice from the warm springs beneath. The holes are big enough to drive a car through. The ice at their rims gradually thinning into a gray sliver that gives away to the dark water at their centers. His house, a ranch with a black roof and tan siding, sits 50 yards away. Next to it, a red pole barn where he stores his john boat and runs his taxidermy business. From where Ray stands, he can see his shop window, a square cut into the corrugated metal. And from there, he could have seen his nephew leave the house and crunch through the calf-deep snow, heading toward the pond, probably with his arms held out like wings to keep his balance. Had Ray only looked up from his work, a rack mount job, a deer shot by Jacob Henderson, there would have been time to lift the window and yell, to scramble out the side door and through the snow and grab the boy by the coat and give him a shake and say, what the hell are you doing? Had he only looked up, he wouldn't be standing here now, where the footprints concluded, at the edge of a hole as black and reflective as the glass eye he'd nudged into a deer's empty socket minutes ago. The boy was supposed to be watching cartoons. The boy, seven years old, or was it six, with his fair skin, his hair so blonde it is nearly white. Ray hardly knows him, sees him only on holidays and when his sister drives down from St. Paul to visit. The boy rarely speaks, and when he does, his voice comes out in a high whisper. His eyes are the blue-black color of the dirty snow piled at the edges of the highway. And now, the boy is trapped beneath the ice, his tiny body floating there turning around and around in what must look like a cave with three columns of light streaming from the holes punched in its roof. Ray doesn't know what to do. Call his sister or call the police. There is no rush. The boy is dead, has to be. But Ray feels a horrible need to act, even if that means stepping forward as if through a trap door, allowing the cold water to squeeze the breath from him. It would be better than facing his sister. The hate he imagines twisting her face. In this moment, on the pond, in the middle of the snow-scalloped cornfield, Ray feels mixed up with anger and regret and sadness. Every stupid protest cycles through his head. I wish I could trade places with the boy. I wish I could turn back time, and so on. Then, as if summoned, the boy's body appears below him. One moment, water sucks and plops at the edges of the hole, and the next, the boy is there, his face a white smear rising out of the darkness. At first, Ray does nothing, 
dazed and blinking. Even when he wants to move a second later, his joints feel rusted and his boots rooted to the ice. How long has he been standing here? Ten minutes? Twenty? He staggers forward, and the ice moans and cracks spread beneath him, thin black creeks that threaten to open up and swallow him. He gets down on his knees slowly, out of stiffness and caution, and then goes flat, bellies up to the ice to distribute his weight. He can't see from this angle, his cheek resting against the ice. He slides forward and reaches out blindly for the hole, his fingers splashing at the edge of it. The slushy perimeter crumbles and his arm drops into the water up to his elbow. His curse is cut short when he feels something catch hold of him. At first, he thinks some starved fish has risen from the depths to bite at his fingers, mistaking them for night crawlers. But when he yanks his arm, he feels the tug of weight and sees the small white hand clamped onto his. Later, he will wonder at the impossibility. He will remember stories from Sunday school and late-night television about miracles, about cold-water survival. He will read on the internet about the girl from Utah who fell through the ice when skating and survived after more than an hour underwater, and about the man in Indiana who spiraled his jeep off a bridge and into a frozen river, trapped below for 30 minutes. There has never been a drug more effective or mysterious than the cold, reads a quote from a doctor. Ray will read about cryogenics, about Walt Disney's head preserved in a deep freeze storage locker somewhere, awaiting resurrection. He will think of everything, and then nothing, concentrating only on the relief he feels. Because it is impossible to think, he acts, pure reflex, crying out to the boy, telling him, Hold on! I've got you! Ray scrambles backwards, drawing the body from the water, some of the ice giving way the hole opening wider as if reluctant to give up its quarry. The boy is laid out on his back. He wears a red jacket, blue jeans, black boots, all of them bleeding water. Ray picks him up and strangles him into a hug. The day is so cold that the pond water on his skin freezes almost instantly, a glassy sheath. Ray tries roughly to rub some warmth into the boy and against his hand, the ice cracks and falls away in shards. The boy's eyes are open, but he is not breathing. Ray imagines the water inside of him hardening into spikes that stab through his lungs. He doesn't really know what he's doing, but he's seen enough movies and television shows to make a go of it. When he sets the boy down and presses his chest once, twice, three times, and then brings their mouths together and breathes into the boy and thinks, please, please. <laughs> After three minutes of this, of Ray alternating, pounding and blowing and calling down favors from a God he doesn't believe in, the boy convulses and gags. Ray turns him on his side so that he can more easily cough out the pinkish water mixed up with bile, the remnants of the bowl of fruit loops he ate that morning in front of the television. Are you all right? Ray says. The boy sits up and rubs his eye and looks at Ray, and Ray looks at the boy, and neither of them says anything. A country highway runs along the edge of the cornfield, and beyond it rises the forest. An old Chevy pickup comes rattling along, and when it stutters in its progress and backfires, the crows cackle madly take to the air 
and leave the trees as naked as skeletons. Two weeks earlier, his sister Helen had called him to beg a favor. Some man, there was always some man, Ray couldn't keep track of them all, wanted to take her on a cruise. The Bahamas, she said, at this time of year, my God, and he's paying for everything, all you can eat, all you can drink. I really, really want to do this, she said. So do it. That's the thing. She needed him to watch the boy. I'd owe you big time. I'd even pay you. Ray said he wasn't sure. This was a busy time of year, his storage locker full of trophies from hunting season. Plus, he hardly knew the boy. What would they talk about? What would they do? And Helen said, That's exactly why this would be so great. This would be his chance to get to know him, to be a good uncle. You'll be fine, she said. He's no trouble. In the living room, he lays the boy down and strips off his jacket, his clothes, tosses them aside into a sodden pile that darkens the carpet. Ray has hopped up on adrenaline that chatters his teeth and sends shivers through his body, but the boy is as still as a sculpture. Even when stripped naked, he remains silent and motionless, his skin white, blue around the edges, like some ice water mollusk scraped from its shell. Ray wraps him in heavy blankets. A smell comes off him. The smell of the pond, of mud and algae and fish. Ray says, shit, 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 under his breath when he charges through the house. He cranks the thermostat to 80. He starts a hot bath. He peels off the lid of a can of beef stew and slops it into a bowl to throw into the microwave. When he returns to the living room, the boy has shrugged off the blankets. He's watching cartoons with his legs folded beneath his knees, the watery light of the television playing across his body. Ray thinks about taking the boy to the hospital, but then he imagines all the problems that will follow. His sister works as a secretary. No, that isn't the right term she uses. Administrative assistant at the auto parts dealer. And she regularly grouses about her insurance, the co-pays, the sky-high deductibles, the denied coverage... He would have to call her to get her policy info. She left him an emergency contact number for the cruise ship. He isn't so much concerned about ruining her trip as he is about getting an earful after she learns what happened. The doctors would no doubt run tests, would keep the boy overnight for observation, and in the end, Ray knows he would foot the bill. He wonders if the police would get involved. Maybe it was neglectful, even illegal, for him to have left the boy alone. How should he know? And then there would be the reporters. He imagines them gathering at the end of his driveway, their cameras like shotguns trained at his house, the pond, all of them eager to tell the story of the miracle boy and his deadbeat uncle. There's no reason to make a lot of trouble out of nothing. Not when everything is fine. The boy is fine. Except that Ray can't seem to warm him up. His skin, the color and feel of sunlit snow. The few times Ray touches the boy, leading him from the television to the kitchen table, from the bathroom to the guest room, he startles at the cold, clammy skin and yanks back his hand. Nor will the boy eat. Ray tries soups, hot cocoa, grilled cheese sandwiches oozing with Velveeta. 
The boy takes the occasional sip or nibble, but otherwise he simply stares at the food, not saying anything. Even when Ray throws up his hands and says, Well, what do you want then? You've got to eat something. Later, he catches the boy in the kitchen. The freezer door is open and the cold is blasting from it, and the boy is scooping chocolate ripple ice cream from the carton into his mouth. Ray lets the boy eat as much as he wants, and the boy wants it all. He chews the ice cream, big spoonfuls of it, his mouth a smacking mess. When a spoon scrapes the bottom of the carton, the boy drops the carton onto the floor, where it blurps out a tongue of chocolate on the linoleum. The boy looks to Ray expectantly, and Ray stutters out a few apologies, says he doesn't have any more ice cream, says he can pick some up at the fairway later. Then he gets an idea and says he'll be right back and pulls a bowl from the cupboard and throws on a coat and heads outside. A gasp of cold greets him. The wind has shaped the snow into drifts like the sluggish waves of some frozen ocean. The day is sunny, but the yard is dark and rippling with shadows, and Ray feels momentarily unbalanced as he staggers off the front step. Crows are overhead, hundreds of them, a circling black eddy that blots out the sun. He keeps an eye on them, as if at any moment they might descend and carry him off, when he kneels to fill the bowl of snow. It's only minutes later after he pours maple syrup over the snow and sets the treat on the kitchen table, after the boy begins to carve his spoon into it, that Ray notices a bit of black mixed up in all that white. A feather. He grabs the boy by the wrist, stops the spoon inches from his open mouth. Slowly, the boy turns his head to stare at Ray and tightens face into a hateful expression, hissing. Ray wakes shivering in the night. The window next to his bed is open. The wind moans through it, and the curtains breathe inward, green and trembling like seaweed. He jumps out of bed and slams shut the window. The curtains settle, but the moaning only shifts to another part of the house. He grabs a sweatshirt from the dirty laundry in the corner and pulls it on when he staggers into the hallway, where the wind blows and the carpet fibers feel like frozen blades of grass. He finds every window in the house open, an invitation to the severe wind that flutters newspaper pages across his living room, that ruffles the bear pelt hanging from the wall, that knocks over the plastic gas station cup and freezes the milk in a half-eaten bowl of cereal. He rushes to close them all, to stop the wind from coming in, while also chasing the sense that something might escape him, the boy. There are two bedrooms in the house. One belongs to him, and the other to a futon and garage sale bench press and a wafty desk, on top of which perches an old IBM computer in a nest of receipts. He finds the boy asleep on the futon. He has kicked off his covers and lies there with his legs and arms splayed as if he is floating. When Ray closes this final window, a hush falls over the house. He can hear the rasp of the boy's breath and something else. A faint cackling from outside. The window is already steaming over, and he wipes a hand through the condensation to reveal the moon, a full yellow moon, darkened by what appears to be a cloud scudding across it. But the cloud moves too fast, and when Ray looks closer, he sees the cloud for what it is. A seething mass of crows. (laughs) 
In the morning, the boy's sheets are wet, a damp oval in the shape of him. It does not smell like urine or sweat. It smells like pond water. Ray is stripping the sheets off the futon when the phone rings. He goes to the kitchen and for a long time stares at it, the black snail of a unit hanging next to the fridge before picking it up. Why did you take so long to answer? His sister says, I was busy. He imagines her bringing her hand to her heart like she always does when she says, I thought something was wrong. No, nothing is wrong. Nothing at all. Are you two getting along? Yes. That's good. That's what I want to hear. You know why? Because I feel happy as shit right now, and I'm not looking to spoil that feeling. The cruise is amazing. The food is amazing. She has an amazing tan. She has made amazing friends. While they are in Nassau, she is going to get her hair braided and then maybe go parasailing and play some blackjack at the casino. Ray thinks he can hear calypso music in the background, a steel drum. He fades out the buzz of her voice, startling when she yells, I said, what's my boy up to? The phone feels like a brick pressed against his ear. He is watching the boy, and the boy is watching cartoons. Is turning his head to observe Ray with eyes that look more black than blue. Watching some TV? Don't bother him then. Tell him I love him, the little shit. She laughs her throaty laugh, and Ray imagines a cloud of cigarette smoke. Tell him I'll see him soon enough. I'll tell him that I will. The walls of the house are pine paneled and studded with dead animals. A 12-point buck, its antlers a thorned basket three quails suspended in flight, an opossum clambering up a log and showing its needled teeth, a bobcat pawing playfully at a large-mouth bass, the skin of a black bear, its legs splayed into an X so that it appears to have been hurled and flattened against the wall. The smell of formaldehyde hangs like an ammonia cloud in the house and in the pole barn, and it puffs off his clothes, his hands, and hair. He doesn't notice it, but others do. His buddies say he smells like he rolled around in a funeral parlor. When a sister visits, with her big hair and her long purple fingernails, she waves a hand in front of her face and says, P.U. And when he sometimes goes out to dinner at Dangerous Curves, a gentleman's club with a buffet supper, the women will dance for him, will smile and snake around him, but when they lean close, their powdered breasts brushing against his cheeks, he notices how their noses crinkle, some of them asking about his cologne. Ray orders his parts, his claws and jaw sets and tongues and tails, his flex eyes and pinpoints and standard pupils, his polyurethane forms for deer, from an online store that delivers via UPS a few times a month. But his chemicals come from a specialty company based out of Rochester. Dyes and resins, adhesives and sealants and preservatives. A few times a year, he drives there and back, the bed of his pickup sloshing with buckets and bottles he buys in bulk. This morning, the morning after the boy fell in the pond, he peels open a bucket of formaldehyde, and the fumes that boil out of it make him weep. He will wipe at his face, wipe away with the heels of his hands the tears wetting his cheeks. This is the only time he cries, not when his father died of a stroke, not when he sent his mother to the nursing home after she lost her mind and ability to cook and clean. Not when his girlfriend of ten years, Tanya, sent to hell with him if he didn't want kids, didn't want to get married. 
didn't really want to spend time with her except the occasional buffet dinner followed by a quick and dirty screw. His sister had always called him cold. He is cold now, in the pole barn, in the walk-in freezer. He is surrounded by shelves of animals, all packaged in plastic. Their ID tags sprawled over with a sharpie that identifies their owner, their date of entry, their order number. He stuffs deer mostly, but also bears, beavers, bobcats, turkeys, pheasant. He makes throw rugs, doeskin gloves, one time a pair of moccasins, though that was a pain in the ass and he would never do that again. He mounts fish on logs and antlers on stained oak and red velvet. He comes in this morning to work on a dog, a bug owned by Ruth Gill, a square-shaped woman who teaches English at the local community college and always wears floral pattern moo-moos, her hair a frizzy red helmet. The dog was named Nosferatu, and she had euthanized it. Cancer, she said. They all die of cancer. It's the dog food that does it. She would dress the dog up in tuxedos, sailor suits, tracksuits. Ray would often see them around town, at the mall, the farmer's market. The pug, bug-eyed and snorting at the end of a leash. Since dropping off the dog, Ruth has called daily to check in, often sobbing, always wanting to know when Ray will be done when Nosferatu can come home. Soon, he tells her, and means it, moving the dog up in his processing schedule so that he can put an end to her pastoring. When Ray is in the freezer, pawing through the stacks of bodies, thumbing their tags, searching for the pug, he comes across a crow. It's not packaged or tagged. Some people who have crows for pets. And sometimes the weirdos, the people with the powder-white faces and the black lipstick and the chains running from their lips to their earlobes, sometimes they drop off a carcass to stuff. But he has no idea where this crow came from. It's the size of his forearm, deeply black, its wings neatly folded against its sides. He picks it up, its feathers like brittle blades of obsidian, its beak open and decorated with hoarfrost that looks like lace or mold, and then drops it and wipes his hand on his jeans and locates the pug and carries its body to the shop, to the stainless steel table with the drain beneath it. Here he will skin it and set the fur aside to clean and dry in oil. The remains, a shrunken pod of bone and muscle, he will dip into plaster of Paris to equal the shape of its body, and then he will make the matching fiberglass mold to sew the skin around. Pluck from a shelf some glass eyes, teeth. But that will come later, for now, the dog, such a hideous dog, something should be buried and forgotten, must thaw. He plugs in a space heater. In a few minutes, he knows, the dog will appear to move, to breathe as it softens. Gases will escape. Joints will unspring. He startles at a noise, a crunching and snapping behind him. The boy sits on a folding chair, swinging his legs in a scissoring motion. Ray doesn't like the boy's eyes, the way they stare at him, unblinking. He would prefer to lock him in a bedroom or plant him in front of a television, but he knows he must keep him close. Earlier, Ray gave him a glass of Coke. The boy has since sucked it down and now chews on the ice, working the cubes around his mouth, slowly crushing them with his teeth, making a noise like bones breaking. Helen will be home soon. In two more days, she will fly from Fort Lauderdale to Minneapolis and grumble up the driveway in her Grand Prix and crash through the door without knocking. Where's my baby, she will say, 
fatter, tanner, grinning widely. Will she even notice any difference? Will the boy smile when he sees her, spring up from his place in front of the television and run into her arms? Will she mess his cheek with lipstick? Will he tell her what happened, how the ice opened up beneath him? Ray hopes so. At least that would be something. Right now, the boy seems capable of nothing, seems to belong to another world. He cries constantly, though not out of pain or sadness, not as far as Ray can tell. It is as though he is leaking, maybe melting, spilling over as if some secret spring inside him has been tapped. Tears dribble down his cheeks. The damp impressions of his fingertips can be found throughout the house, on the windows, the kitchen table, the TV remote. And when he walks across the carpet, slowly now and hunched over, like an old man whose muscles have gone flaccid, whose joints are clotted with rust, he leaves behind footprints, the carpet damp and decorated with half-moon designs. He won't eat anymore. Not even the open cartons of ice cream that Ray sets in front of him, a spoon thrust into them, Neapolitan, cookie dough, chocolate fudge triple chunk. Come on, Ray says, snap out of it. The boy sleeps most of the day, curled up on the living room floor or sprawled out on the futon. Ray finds it hard to focus on the boy's face, his features seeming smeared over as if seen through a rainy window. There's a cold snap. On the television, weathermen swing their arms across the maps of Minnesota like wizards conjuring winds. Their voices are high-pitched and hurried when they talk about changing pressure systems, plummeting temperatures. They frown when they say, This is a deadly winter, folks. Stay inside. They talk about the bitterness of the air, as if wind had a flavor, the gusts making it feel like 40 below. The footage cuts to a shot of a reporter out in the field. He throws a bucket of water into the air and it transforms into a cloud of crystals. He hammers a nail into a board with a muffin left outside to freeze. Ray's sister called an hour ago, and he let the machine pick it up. We're here. We landed, waiting for our luggage now. And guess what? We're going to book the next flight back to the Bahamas. <laughs> Joking. But seriously, why do we live here? The weather is trying to kill us. See you soon. Can't wait to see my sweet boy. Love you. Ray looks around the house at the dead animals nailed to the walls, at the dishes piled up in the sink, at the mail stacked on the table, at the boy sitting in front of the television. He should do something to get ready for her. He picks up an empty ice cream carton off the floor and puts it in the trash can that is already heaped high. He isn't sure when he last took a shower. That's what he should do. A long, hot shower and shave. A fresh shirt. He should try to look like someone you would trust your child with. Thirty minutes later, he climbs out of the shower and towels off and pulls on his clothes in a bathroom swirling with ghostly steam. A cold current of air streams under the door, and he doesn't think much about it until he turns the knob and steps into the hall where the wind grips him. His damp hair instantly freezes. He thuds down the hallway and rounds the corner and sees the front door open and swinging. From the walls comes a groaning as the pipes begin to seize up. He shoves his feet into boots but doesn't have time to find his coat. He runs into the day with an arm held out as if to ward off the cold. 
the sun shines, its light blurred by the blown snow that swirls all around him. With the lunar quality of winter light and the cratered snowscape of his property, he might as well have been on the moon. Ray cannot see far, visibility reduced to less than 50 yards one minute, 10 the next, but he can see enough, a blur of color. The boy, still in his pajamas, moving toward the pond. Ray tries to run. He lifts his knees high to trudge through the deep snow. Already his fingers and ears and the tip of his nose have gone numb. A black darkness, darker than a shadow, catches the corner of his eye. He glances down at it. A crow, dead in the snow. By the time he registers it, he's already upon another, and then another, and another still. Dead crows litter the yard killed by the cold. At that very moment, another appears out of the white oblivion and strikes the ground before him with a thud. His boot crunches over it. More crows fall, one of them crashing painfully against his shoulder, where it will leave a bruise as if its color was contagious. He can no longer feel his face. His hands are like weights swinging at the ends of his arms. He stumbles into the pond now, the boy not so far away, ghosting in and out of view. He calls out, Stop! Stop, damn it! But the wind carries away his voice. He wonders if the boy will resist him, will lash out with his fingers curled over into bony claws. The thought is interrupted when he spots the hole in the ice and reels backward. Another step and he would have fallen through. He spins around in a circle. He is alone. The boy is gone. Swallowed by the pond or erased by the wind, Ray hugs his arms around his chest. His body shudders, his eyes water, the tear trails freezing on his cheeks. The snow is all around him, a white void, and he feels lost and overwhelmed in its changelessness. He knows he will vanish too if he doesn't depart this place. He leans into the wind and follows the trail of footprints, the only means by which he can find his way home and the only indication that the boy ever existed. The way is so endlessly cold. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of The Other Stories. The Cold Boy was written by Benjamin Percy, narrated by Justin Fife, edited by Carl Hughes, and muted by Stephen O'Brien and Tom Robson, and sound effect provided by freesound.org. The episode illustration was provided by Luke Spooner of Carry On House. A quick thanks to our community managers, Joshua Boucher and Jasmine Arch, and to Joshua Boucher and Carolyn O'Brien for helping with our submission reading, and of course to Ben Errington for the ongoing explosion of content he fires out of his social media canon. Benjamin Percy is a novelist, comics writer, and screenwriter. He writes Wolverine, X-Force, and Ghost Rider for Marvel Comics, and his latest novel, The Sky Vault, releases September 2023. For more, head over to benjaminpercy.com. Justin Fife is a voice actor and podcaster. You can follow him on Twitter at Justin B. Fife. The Other Stories is a production of the Story Studio Hawk and Cleaver, and is brought to you with a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. That means don't change it, don't sell it but by all means, share the hell out of him. Until next time. 
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.